Well, I think on this Super Bowl Sunday, it's only fitting we find out who everyone's going for. So who here, by show of hands and a shout if you want to, who here's going for the 49ers? Raise your hands. Okay. Who's going for the Chiefs? About pretty even. All right. Who here does not care about football or the Super Bowl? Can we pause and pray for our deceived brothers and sisters in the room? You're deceived. This last week on social media, I asked the question, what's the greatest Super Bowl of all time? Many of you responded. I want to share a few of the responses uh, with us today as we get started. So any, any Packers fans here today? Okay, a couple of So someone said that the greatest Super Bowl of all time was any Super Bowl the Packers played in, which won't be today. I'm just saying. Uh, there was a bunch of people that mentioned the 2000 Rams versus Titans game. That's where the Rams stopped the Titans on the, like the, on the goal line, inches of spare, on the very last play of the game. It was one of the greatest of all time. Uh, many people uh, shared Patriots wins and losses. Uh, I, I have to admit, as much as, it hates, uh, as I hate to say it, the comeback win of the Patriots over the Falcons a few years ago, hands down, greatest comeback of all time. I still hate the Patriots, but you can't deny that was an amazing, an amazing game. Several Broncos Super Bowls were mentioned. Uh, the, the Denver win over Carolina a few years back when Manning got his last Super Bowl ring, last game of his career. Uh, Super Bowl 32, where John Elway got his first Super Bowl, was mentioned by a number of different people. But if we're going to say a Super Bowl that Denver was in, I- I'm going to lean more towards the 43-8 to beatdown the Seahawks put on them a few years ago. Um, you know, it, that game was over literally after the first snap. Here's proof. The ball going by the helmet. Peyton Manning went out of bounds. That's what I want to remember when it comes to the Broncos Super Bowls. Now, I wasn't alive to see the game that I'm suggesting is the greatest. I'm not saying I'm right, but I do think it's the most remembered, most well-known Super Bowl of all time, largely based on the circumstances surrounding the game. In January of 1969, Joe Namath led the New York Jets on this improbable run to Super Bowl III where they would face and defeat the heavily favored Baltimore Colts. Now, some of you aren't old enough. You're thinking, no, it's not Baltimore Colts, Baltimore Ravens. No, it used to be the Baltimore Colts. There was no Indianapolis Colts. It was Baltimore Colts. They were heavily favored. New York, the Jets, they were 18-point underdogs, which I think stands as the largest underdog in Super Bowl history. No one, no expert, really no fans, believed they had any chance at beating the Colts. But Joe Namath, their quarterback... He not only believed, he actually was bold enough to publicly declare a victory. Many of you know about this, even if you don't know or weren't alive at the time, but three days before the Super Bowl, as they were in Miami preparing for the game, Joe Namath made a public declaration that they would indeed, he guaranteed a victory over the Colts. People mocked him, laughed at him, ridiculed him. The thing is, he went out there and pulled it off, right? He he led his team to... A victory. As far as I'm aware, uh, there is no one since who has ever guaranteed a Super Bowl win. And if they did, no one talks about it. Why? Because the only reason we remember Joe Namath's guarantee is he went out and backed it up with his actions. He went out and actually showed it on the field. Like anyone can declare a victory. Today, any player from both teams can guarantee a victory. It's one thing to guarantee a victory. It's another thing altogether to go out there and actually show it, to back it up with your actions. And listen, this is not just true in a football game. 
This is true in our spiritual lives, too. And that's actually what I want to focus on today. As we close out a sermon series we've been in called 2020, Clear Vision for Your Life. If you're new here, by the way, my name is Jeff Manis. I am the lead pastor here. And uh, whether you like football or not, no matter who you're going for, uh, I am thrilled that you are with us. That is for everybody in the room, both here in the auditorium, anybody joining us on video as well. Just so you guys know, next week we are starting a brand new two-part mini-series on baptism uh, called Made New. As we head into Baptism Sunday on March 1st, we wanted to do a a quick series that explains not just what baptism is, but why we should be baptized. Uh, Whether you have no idea how to explain baptism or whether you're a longtime Christian and you can explain it in detail, I really do think this little mini-series we're doing is going to be very helpful for all of us to focus on and learn about the meaning and message of baptism. There's some invite and information cards uh, on the seats when you came in. Uh, There's never a bad time to invite someone new to church, but one of the best times is when we start a new sermon series. So pray this week about who you can invite to come to church on Sunday. Main scripture today is Psalm 92, 12 through 15. Psalm 92, 12 through 15. If you brought your Bible with you, especially a hard, you know, an actual copy of a Bible. Uh, Psalms is about halfway through the Bible. If you're here and you don't own a Bible, we don't want you to leave without one. So please ask for a Bible out in the lobby before you go uh, at the Next Steps wall. Our guest services will make sure and get you a Bible free of charge. Psalm 92, these verses, has been our theme scripture through this whole series. Now, these verses don't speak to every single part of our lives. I do think, though, they offer us some great vision for some essential parts of our lives. They help bring some clarity, some focus, if you will, to how we want to or should want to live our lives. This series really has focused more on the spiritual side of things in life. But even if you're here and you don't believe in Jesus, don't consider yourself a a spiritual person, uh, first of all, we love it that you are here. But also, uh, this practice of developing a life plan in your, in your life, it's beneficial for everyone, regardless of whether you believe or not. Like, it's never a bad thing to have direction in life, right? It's never a bad thing to have a vision or a plan for what you want to accomplish. I've mentioned a light, the life plan process that I went through uh, this last July and uh, really helped inspire this sermon series. We, we do still have some sample life plans out at the Next Steps wall that gives, gives you an overview, some instructions on how you want to do, if you want to do a life plan of your own, I can't encourage you enough to take some time and do that. We also have some 2020 bracelets uh, out there at the Next Steps wall. We didn't realize how many people would want this and we almost went through all of them in first service. Uh, Therefore, we can't give them all out here in this service, but there's a few left out at the Next Steps wall where these life plans are as well. If you want to brace it just to remind you of some things in your life, things we've talked about, I'd encourage you to pick up one of those. I want to kind of walk through each of the first three verses of our main scripture and recap where we've been in the series, and then we'll end um, with verse 15 and, and talking through that. Psalm 92, verse 12, says this, But the godly will flourish like palm trees and grow strong like the cedars of Lebanon. 
So in week one of the series, we talked about how God doesn't want us to just have life. God wants us to flourish in our spiritual lives. One of the things I challenge us with as a church is to memorize scripture together all throughout this year. So I, our, our, our verse for January that we focused on was Galatians 1 verse 10. I won't recap it here. I'll tell you here in a second what the next verse is for February, but I hope that you're going to uh, kind of follow along and try to put some scripture to memory as a part of our plan to flourish spiritually. Psalm 92 verse 13 then says this, for they, speaking of the godly, they are transplanted to the Lord's own house. They flourish in the courts of our God. So the second week, we talked about uh, connection to other people in the faith, that you can survive without being connected, but you'll struggle to have the strength that you need. And this idea of connection really is birthing uh, the verses we chose to memorize for February. So here's uh, what I'm challenging our staff and anyone who wants to participate to memorize this month. There's two verses this time, Romans 12, 4, and 5. So the reference is on the screen. The verses are not. I'm going to try to give them to you uh, from memory. So Romans 12, 4 and 5 says this. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body, meaning the church. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. It's powerful verses. Really fits well with that connection piece and our core value of better together, which is what that one is coming from. Then last week, our great friend Joe Sangal was here. He focused more on verse 14. It says this, even in old age, and I'll let you determine what age that is. Even in old age, they will still produce fruit. They'll remain vital and green. And Joe did an incredible job teaching us to connect our dreams to our dollars and live in a way that produces financial fruit in our lives. Not not just making more money, but making a difference, making an impact with the resources and money that God's trusted us with. So if you look at where we've been in the series, we talked about flourishing spiritually, connecting relationally, and making an impact. If you're paying attention and know our our church vision, that actually is our vision as a church, that we exist to guide people to experience life to its fullest, to flourish, connect into meaningful relationships and make a lasting impact, which brings us then to today, Psalm 92, verse 15 says this, they, that's referring to the old and godly, those who are flourishing spiritually, those who remain strong, those who produce fruit, those who are vital and green, they, those people, they will declare, the Lord is just, he is my rock, there is no evil in him. Now, all through the series, we've been using this pine tree here as a symbol of, our, of, of, of a vision for a godly life. In the natural world, the physical realm, a pine tree really speaks into who we are and what we should do to, to, to flourish spiritually, to, to grow strong together, to produce fruit. I mean, a pine tree is the perfect example of living a godly life. And before you think I've done lost my mind, I know I'm saying pine tree every single time. I saw people like leaning over to their spouse like, he's saying pine tree. I'm surprised my kids didn't interrupt the service and tell me I was doing it all wrong. I know this is not a pine tree. I did that on purpose for illustration. I actually told our staff and volunteers, I'm purposely messing up, so please don't stop me and let me know I was doing it wrong. So uh, here's why I did that. 
No matter how much I declare this is a pine tree, it doesn't make it a pine tree. This tree is identified by what it shows, not just by what I say or if it could talk, what it says. Like no matter how many words I say, it doesn't change the fact it's a palm tree. Even, even as a fake one, which I'm uh, thankful for our set design team who built this. It makes it look pretty real. But even for a fake tree, we know it's not a pine tree. It's a palm tree. Verse 15 says about the godly that they will declare the Lord is just. He is my rock. There is no evil in him. And how do they declare that? Well, yes, by, by saying words. But more importantly, I believe by what they show. And that's actually our big idea for today. It's on the screens if you want to write it down. And it's this. The greatest declarations are not in what we say. They're in what we show. The greatest declarations are not in what we say. We we, we use this with our children. Actions speak louder than words. So the greatest declarations are not in what we say. They're in what we show. That was true for Joe Namath. If he would have lost Super Bowl, we wouldn't even remember that thing. It's true for calling this a pine tree. No matter how much I say it, it's not a pine tree, it's a palm tree. And it's never more true than in our spiritual lives. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 20 in the New Testament portion of the Bible says this, For the kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk. It is living by God's power. Hello. That's good, right? So, so yes, I want, as, as a Christian, I want my mouth to declare the Lord is just. He is my rock. There is no evil in him. I'll be doing that in this message. I should be doing that in my life. But, but the greatest declarations in my life are not what I say. They're what I show. So I've got to ask myself this big question. And if you're a Christian, you should ask it too. What should I want my life to show? It's a very important question. What should I want my life to show? And listen, there are literally many, many things we could talk about that that, uh, the life of a Christian should show, but we're going to focus on those three declarations in verse 15 that we already read. These three things are what I want my life to show, and I believe every single Christian should want their life to show these as well. Yes, as Christians, we will say these things, but more importantly, we should show them by the way we Live. So what should I want my life to show? Each of the points literally just comes straight from the scripture, didn't change them at all. Number one is this, the Lord is just. The Lord is just. If you want a dad joke, say this, just what? That was really bad, I apologize. Now my kids are embarrassed. The key idea here with the word just, especially when you look at the, the original language, is that God is faithful. We sang it. He's faithful. He's faithful to keep his promises. He's faithful to be our friend. He's faithful, faithful to provide for all of our needs. That, that because God is just, he can be trusted. And my life should show that, not just say it. John Gill, a theologian, in his commentary on this, this phrase said this, The Lord is just. That is faithful as he is in his counsels, covenants, and promises, which he makes good by causing his people to grow and flourish and become fruitful by carrying on the work of grace upon their souls, not just offering grace in our physical lives, but in our souls, and by preserving them to the end, safe to his kingdom and glory. 
that, that as I flourish in my spiritual life, as I remain strong by being transplanted to the Lord's own house, as I produce fruit in my, in my life for the glory of God and the good of others, I am declaring the Lord is just. He is faithful. I can trust him because he is good. And the moment I say that, there are some people who think, well, how can you say God is faithful? How can you say God is good when all these bad things have happened in my life? And listen, if that's how you feel, I get it. When we walk through difficulty, trial, suffering, pain, it's so easy to think that God's not being faithful or God's not being good. But this is what we've got to understand. The faithfulness of God is not measured by the level of good things in my life. The faithfulness of God is measured by the level of his goodness in my life in spite of all the bad things. I'll preach right there. Like God is good, not because of what happens. God is good regardless of what happens. That he carries us on, as the commentator said, with the work of grace in my life and soul, preserving me to the end, that even though I might face many difficult things in life, he keeps me safe to his kingdom and glory. Earlier in the service, we sang that hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. It's one of the most famous hymns, popular hymns of all time. That song was written by a man named Thomas Chisholm. He was born in 1866. Early on in his life, he was called to ministry and was ordained as a pastor. But because of continued poor health in his life, it forced him to leave the ministry. To leave this thing that God called him to do. To leave this thing he loved to do, which was be a pastor. He also, though, loved writing poetry. And in 1923, he sent, uh, sent all of his poems to a friend. His name was William Runyon. Runyon was a musician who also worked for a hymnal publishing company. Runyon was immediately taken in by the depth and the meaning of one of the poems, Great is Thy Faithfulness. After putting them to music, putting that to music, it wasn't until 1954 that churches really began even using it in their congregational settings. And that happened when a budding evangelist at the time, his name, Billy Graham, began using that song at his crusades, which then brought it into the church world as well. Since that time, it's become one of the world's most popular and meaningful hymns. In 1941, Looking back at the writing of this poem turned him before it ever became popular. No one was using it. Chisholm said this about his life. My income has not been large at any time due to poor health, which has followed me through today. Although I must not fail to record here the unfailing faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God and that he has given me many wonderful displays of his providing care for which I am filled with astonishing gratefulness. Wow. I talk about the faithfulness of God. At the time he said this, that song had not even become popular yet. 
And now, 97 years after giving this poem to his friend, God is still using it to minister to people even in this very setting today. And Chisholm will never know the lives he's impacted with that song. And if it weren't for the struggle that he had to endure with the continuing poor health in his life, would he ever have been able to write about the faithfulness of God? I think it was his sickness that led to his song. And God used it to show, I am faithful. Chisholm declared, not just with his words, but with his life, the Lord is just. He's faithful. He's good. Church, I want that. I want that for for my own life. To say In the midst of pain, he's so good, he's filled me with astonishing gratefulness. Listen, I I don't wish bad things to ever happen to me, but oh, how I pray, when they do, I will declare the goodness of my God with astonishing gratefulness. The greatest declarations are not in what we say, they're in what we show. So what should I want my life to show? The Lord is just, he's faithful, Number two, he is my rock. He's my rock. Again, if you look at the original language here, the main idea is that God is, or at least should be, the place I go to for safety. The place I go to for security. Not anything or anyone else. He is my rock. He is my fortress of protection. King David, who wrote Psalm 92, also wrote many of the other Psalms, he says this in greater detail in another one of his Psalms, Psalm 18, verse 2. I love how David just describes his God. He says this, the Lord is my, what? Rock, my fortress, going to come back to that word in a second, and my Savior, My God is my rock in whom I find protection. He is my shield, the power that saves me, and my place of safety. Is that not awesome? That word fortress we see there in verse 2 of Psalm 18 uh, in the original language is the the word masada. It could also be translated as stronghold or, or rock. If you ever get a chance to go to Israel, which by the way, Lord willing, I'll be leading another trip to Israel in uh, March of 2022. So start saving now. You got two years. It is pricey to go, uh, but I'd love to have you go. If you do go, you'll most likely see an actual place called Masada. Here it is. Got a picture of it. I didn't take this picture, but it's a picture of it. That's that rock formation right there in the, in the, in the foreground. Masada, if you don't know, sits on the plains of the Dead Sea. It's the lowest place on planet Earth. That rock formation, Masada, rises up 1,300 feet from the floor. At the top, it's 1,800 feet long and 890 feet wide. At one point, King Herod built a fortress, a palace, up on top of Masada with a wall all the way around it. There's some pictures of the remains. It's still there. You can can tour it in in Israel. A wall all the way around the top of, of the rock that was nearly impossible to conquer. Now, Masada is just a few miles away from a place called En Gedi. En Gedi is my favorite place in all of Israel. I cannot wait to go back again. En Gedi is where King David ran to when Saul was trying to kill him. King Saul was trying to kill David, and David ran to En Gedi and would hide in the caves in En Gedi. 
In Gedi is also where we know that David wrote, or at least referred to, was inspired by in Gedi to, to write his psalms. Many of his psalms were inspired or written there. Psalm 18, which we just read, verse 2, is a psalm that David wrote in praise to God after God saved him from Saul. Most likely wrote it thinking about in Gedi or that area. Scholars, theologians, historians, they all believe that Masada, that rock we saw, was the place David was referring to in Psalm 18 when he wrote, the Lord is my rock, my fortress. He's my Masada. It's that tower of strength in my life. He goes on in verse 31 of Psalm 18 to say this, for who is God except the Lord? Who but our God is a solid rock. He uses that word again that we pronounce Masada. That, that even when my life is falling apart around me, even when everything seems like shifting sand, even when the storms of life surround me and it seems like life is attacking against me, even when nothing is going good for me, David says, he is my firm foundation. He is my safety. He is my security. He is my confidence. Who but our God is a solid rock? Who but our God is a fortress? Who but our God is Masada? Cannot be shaken. The greatest declarations are not in what we say. They're in what we show. So what should I want my life to show? The Lord is just, he's faithful, he's good. He is my rock. Now listen, this, this doesn't mean that, that we can't grieve or mourn or acknowledge pain or suffering or hurt in our lives. It just means that inside of all those things, I will not be shaken for I am standing on Masada himself, my fortress, my rock. The third thing, that we should want to show with our life is the last one here. There is no evil in him. There's no evil in him. This is massively important. As Albert Barnes, one of my favorite theologians, said about this statement, in his commentary, he says this, In all respects, he is worthy of confidence. Worthy to be loved, trusted, adored, obeyed by all the inhabitants of the world. What a sublime thought is this. What a comforting truth. What would the universe be if God, a being of infinite power, were not also a being of perfect righteousness? Think about that. If God is who we say he is and who he said he was, all-powerful, all-knowing, no one higher than him, has always existed, no beginning, no end. If God is that, but yet he was also evil at the same time, can you imagine? Can you imagine? But what a sublime thought is this, that our God of infinite power also is a God of perfect righteousness. I can trust him with my life. I can trust him with my eternity because that's who he is. Listen, None of us know when our lives will end. We don't know. One week ago today, the world was rocked by the tragic news of Kobe Bryant's passing at 41 years old. Rocked the world. Eight other people also died 
in that helicopter crash, including his 13-year-old daughter. We don't know when our lives will end. And I'm not trying to trivialize that event. Here's, Here's why I say that. Just because I have a vision for my life doesn't mean I'll get to see it through. Like, I, in my life plan, I fleshed out a 20-year life plan. But I might only get to see 20 months of it, or 20 weeks, or 20 days, or 20 hours, or 20 minutes. Church, I'm not guaranteed the next 20 seconds of my life, and neither are you. That's a sobering thought when you think about eternity and what that means. That, that our lives are a blip on, on the radar. So, so having a vision for my life doesn't guarantee that I will see it through. It just means I'm, I'm, I've given myself some focus on what I'm going to do every single day of my life. I want purpose. I want vision in my life. The, the, the vision statement I gave for my life plan is, is this. I will live out every area of my life in a way that is flourishing and alive, fortified and strong, fruitful for others and faithful to our God. That's what I want my life to be. And if I live out that 20-year life plan and even go beyond, that's what I want my life to be. If I live only for 30 more minutes, that's what I want my life to be. I'm saying it, but I want my life to show it too. That, that regardless of what happens to me and regardless of what happens around me, I'm going to do everything in my power to flourish spiritually every day. Like a palm tree experiencing life to its fullest, unhindered by the changing of seasons around me. I'm going to seek to be strong, finding my strength in community by being transplanted to the Lord's own house. I will flourish in the courts of my God, even in old age. No matter how old that is, I will still produce fruit, making, making my, an impact with my life for the glory of God and the good of others. And in all things, whether good or bad, I will declare the Lord is just. He's faithful. He is good. He can be trusted. He is my rock my fortress, my protection. He is my place of safety. He is my shield. He is my power. He is the one who saves me. Who is God except the Lord? Who but our God is a solid rock. I will not be shaken. And friends, there is no evil in our God. He is perfect and righteous, holy and pure. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He is my light in the darkness. He is my strength when I am weak. He is my hope when all hope seems lost. He is my helper, my redeemer, my rescuer, and my deliverer. The Lord is a warrior, and he fights on my behalf. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the bright and morning star. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is for me and not against me. He loves me unconditionally and without question. And he not only hears me when I pray, he answers me as well. And he is with me no matter what I face in this life. So I am confident in God. I'm standing with God and I will trust in my God. That's what I want my life to show, gang. That's what I want your life to show. Can you imagine? Can 
Can you imagine a church where all of us live that out? Changes the world. Changes the world. So do you, do you have a vision for your life? Do you have some clarity, some focus on what you want to pursue? I'll tell you, if, if God is who he says he is, and he is, the only thing that matters, the most important part of your life is knowing him. And the fact that he wants to know you can't fathom that. If you're here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus, our rock, our faithful one, our trusted one, our Masada, no evil. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, there's no better time than right now. God saw that you would be here in this moment. He knew every word I would speak and he brought you to this place today for that moment. That God, all-powerful, all-knowing, faithful, just, good, true, rock, Masada, no evil, that God loved us so much that he entered into flesh and became Jesus. He modeled life for us. He died. We, we are all sinners and we couldn't die for our own sins. So, so God in the flesh, Jesus died for us on the cross. <laughs> but three days later, guess what? The tomb was empty. He rose from the dead. And now he says, by faith in me, I will give you forgiveness for all your sins. I'll fill you with the power to follow me. And then one day, one day, you won't have to talk about Masada. You'll stand with him forever in eternity. Like, come on. If you've never put your faith in Jesus to forgive your sins, I want to give you that chance right now. I want you to say this prayer with me. Just say it in your heart silently to God. This prayer does not save you. Jesus saves you. It's your faith that accesses that salvation. Father in heaven, I thank you that you sent Jesus for me. Jesus, I believe you are God. You are faithful. You are good. You are my rock. There's no evil in you, and yet you died for me. So I confess all my sins to you. Everything I've ever done, I, I confess them. Please forgive me. Wash me clean. Make me new. Come into my heart. I'm going to turn from my, my old sinful way of living and repent and turn from my way of life trying to find things to trust in. I'm going to trust in you, the only unchanging one. I'm going to do my best to, to follow you. Lord, thanks for loving me. Help me love you back. In Jesus' name, amen.